0: Merely spending money on litigation does not transform a case about misappropriation of money into a protected conduct.
1: Welcome to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. And now your hosts, Tim Cole and Jeff Lewis.
0: Welcome, everyone. I am Jeff Lewis. And I'm Tim Kowal. On this, the California Appellate Law Podcast, we try to provide a resource for trial attorneys who are facing appeals. Both Jeff and I are appellate specialists, but we split our practices about evenly between trial and appellate courts. And on this podcast, we try to give our listeners some perspective they can use in their practice.
2: All right, everyone, welcome to the podcast. And a quick announcement, this podcast is sponsored by Case Text. Case Text is a legal research tool that harnesses AI and a lightning fast interface to help lawyers find case authority fast. I've been a subscriber since 2019, and I highly endorse the service. Listeners of the podcast will receive a 25% lifetime discount available to them if they sign up at casetext.com slash calp. That's casetext.com slash
0: C-A-L-P. All right, Jeff. I had a couple of cases that I found in the past week that involve slaps, or one of them involves slaps. Uh, and the other, I'm going to I'm gonna fit that square peg into the round hole anyway. And the uh, this first one involves lawsuits over money. That the litig- that the defendant tried to squeeze into the, the square hole of a slap and the court said no way so uh, the, the takeaway is that appropriating money is not speech in the anti-slap context so see if you can spot the slap issue in this fact pattern So first the plaintiff sues his business partner partner taking money from the partnership so so far we're clean this is just a basic business tort uh, no slap plaintiff also alleges that the partner concealed the wrongful activity. Still, nothing slappable so far. But then the plaintiff goes on to allege that the partner used the misappropriated money to pay lawyers for litigation. So what do you say, Jeff? Uh Aha, allegations about litigation. That means it's a slap, right? Nope, a stretch. Yeah, too much of a stretch. That's what the defendant ran up against in Manlin versus Milner, a second district case this month in August 2022. It's a non-published opinion. But we're going to talk about that aspect of it. The uh, the defendant in that case, is, as you mentioned, Jeff, was incorrect. Merely spending money on litigation does not transform a case about misappropriation of money into a protected conduct uh, involving the slap or in triggering the slap statute. So here is the court's explanation for why spending misappropriated money on protected litigation conduct is still not a slap. Quote, no element of the defendant Manlin's claims depends on the purpose for the diversion of funds, but only on the diversion itself and whether that diversion constituted self-dealing. The diversion may have been to further some protected activity, for example, to fund a political campaign or publish a newsletter or fund litigation, but that purpose does not convert Manlin's suit to one arising from the protected activity, end quote. So, the, the opinion is unpublished. But, Jeff, I think the court should publish that opinion. Defendants continue to raise this, this angle, this uh, protected activity. Now, the, the defendant's argument was not without some support. There is a, a very, very commonly cited case, Rousheen versus Cohen. It's commonly cited in anti slap motions in an effort to transform a misappropriation claim into a protected conduct triggering the anti slap statute wherever the misappropriated money is uh, used for uh, litigation spending it on lawyers for litigation or for some other protective conduct defendants often file an anti-slap motion saying look your your complaint alleges protected conduct so it's a slap what do you think jeff do you think you think this case
2: ought to be published you think it comes up often enough i think this case is correctly decided and i think there is an abuse sometimes People, defense lawyers, read the word court or litigation in the pleadings, and all of a sudden, they automatically think about anti-slap. And I think the court got it right here, that what a person intends or believes they're going to do with the money at some point is not terribly relevant to establishing a prima facie case, and therefore, it shouldn't be relevant for slap purposes. And Tim, I think you and I should uh, should pen a letter to the uh, Court of Appeal politely asking them to uh, to publish.
0: I'll send you a draft. Would love to have okay. your your co-sign on it.
2: Personally, I
0: had a case where I represented the plaintiff and the allegations were quite similar. There was allegations of misappropriation of funds. There as circumstantial evidence. We talked about how the funds were used for subsequent litigation conduct and voila, we got hit with an anti-slap motion. We defeated it in the trial court, but then we spent 2 years in the court of appeal, got it affirmed, but in an unpublished opinion. And so if we had if we had gotten that opinion uh, published, then maybe Manlid wouldn't have brought his anti-slap motion here. What do you think? If we uh, if we go forward with this request for publication and get it published, do you think that will deter these kinds of lawsuits or these kinds of slap motions yeah.
2: rather? Well, and, you know, listeners of our podcast l- looking for ways to shift attorney's fees and litigation like this instead of doing an anti-slap in a, in a case like this with theft of money, they could just invoke that penal code section you referred to in our last episode. And uh, find another way to get attorney's fees and and not use a slap.
0: We're always looking for angles. Yeah, that that penal code section we talked about 496c. All right, here's another case that I that I thought maybe I'd try to stump you with, Jeff. Uh, and the question, the the kind of the umbrella question here is: How can you enforce an appellate stay? Now, in our last episode, uh, we talked with Joseph Chora about judgment enforcement and stays of judgment enforcement, and one of the aspects that we talked about was. Now, when you file an appeal, you're supposed to get an automatic stay of enforcement. But the trick is how to enforce an automatic stay when the other side doesn't agree with you that that there's an automatic stay in place. It's only as automatic as the courts and your opposing counsel believe it. That's right. So, yeah, in, in practice, uh, the automatic stay sometimes become wish, uh, becomes wishful thinking. So, uh, for example, when it comes to fee awards on slap motions, There is the Quiles versus Parent decision and my recent article, which persuasively demonstrates that slap fee awards are cost awards and thus automatically stayed pending appeal. But when we as we talked about in uh, the last episode, Jeff, uh, you and you and Joseph demonstrated that there are still a lot of attorneys holding on to the bad reasoning in Dowling versus Zimmerman, holding that slap fee awards are like money judgments and thus uh, not automatically stayed on appeal and uh, and i'm i'm smirking at you jeff because obviously these are both published opinions they may both be cited by litigants in support of either one of those propositions uh, although they are they're opposite one another but jeff if you are representing a plaintiff in an appeal of a slap award against him so you got to you know usually you are the moving defendant but sometimes you're the plaintiff defending against a slap motion so let's say you're you're defending against a slap motion on behalf of the plaintiff and you want to enforce the automatic stay under Quiles because you've got a, an attorney's fees award against you. And uh, the trial court had just got it wrong. It was not a slap. It was, it was like the Manlin case we just talked about. But the court went along with it and found that there was protected activity. So now you've got an, a slap attorney's fees award against you. You want to get it reversed. But in the meantime, you want to prevent your client from getting his bank account wiped. So you want to enforce the automatic stay. Under the Quiles decision, so what do you do? How do you uh, affect the automatic stay when the other side is saying, "No, no, no," there's the Dowling case. I'm able to uh, to uh, I'm able to go forward and enforce it, auto- notwithstanding the stay.
2: Yeah, maybe we should uh, retitle this segment not stump Jeff, but make Jeff squirm because I don't <laughs> like being in this position. You know, I typically do represent defendants, but uh, in the rare case that I actually represented a plaintiff in a smack, a strategic motion against credible claims that was improperly granted and there were fees out there that I wanted stayed, I would argue that costs are not routine costs. And the the one-way shifting provided by the anti-slap statute maybe makes uh, quills more persuasive than Dowling in that limited instance. And I'd file a motion in the trial court to confirm the automatic stays in place. But I would certainly hold my nose while making the argument, and I'd do my best to argue for a discretionary stay based on the specific facts of the case. Okay.
0: All right, I think that's right. But here's where I want to talk about something kind of kind of nitty gritty, and we're going to talk about labels. So if you're going to file a motion to enforce the stay, that's uh, the type of motion that the aggrieved party filed in this recent case, Merit versus Specialized Loan Servicing LLC. It's a Sixth District case. Uh, this uh, August 2022. It's not a slap case, but the principles concerning halting a foreclosure sale in uh, to honor the the automatic appellate stay are are still applicable here so the trial court denied the motion for for stay to enforce the automatic appellate stay and on appeal the court dismissed the appeal because an order denying enforcement of a stay is not an appealable order as the merit court noted an order denying enforcement of an automatic stay is not listed as among the appealable orders under code of civil procedure section 904.1 Instead, the court said the appropriate method of challenging the denial of an order to enforce the stay under Section 916 is a petition for writ of supersedious. But the curious thing, Jeff, about this is that the appellants did file a a petition for supersedious, and it was summarily denied, as uh, most writ petitions are. Because unlike an appeal, a writ petition may be summarily denied. You're not entitled to a reasoned decision that you are in direct appeal. That's in addition to the statistical likelihood of prevailing. The other reason you want to be able to file a direct appeal is because you're entitled to a reasoned decision, not just a one-word postcard that says denied. So Jeff, here is what I would suggest you could try if you want to get direct review of an order denying an enforcement of the automatic stay. And here's my suggestion. You need to file the motion for enforcement of stay, labeled as an application for an injunction. Because it's it's effectively the same thing as enforcement of the stay. You want to enjoin the other party from wiping bank accounts or leaning on property and, and what have you. But the critical difference is denials of injunctions are appealable under Section 904.1, Subdivision A6. So what do you think, Jeff? By by that strategic labeling and, and citation of the injunction statutes, would that uh, you think that would work to bring it within the appealability under 904.1?
2: Well, yeah, great idea. I don't ever want you representing my opponents and slap matters because of this uh, idea. But let me ask you this. If a slap fee award is automatically stayed without the need for posting a bond or anything, and you call it an injunction to go in and prevent enforcement or recognize the automatic stay, and injunctions are void unless there's a bond ordered, could you then be forcing, as the plaintiff, your client to post a bond to support an injunction, whereas they wouldn't normally be required to post a bond?
0: Uh, that, that's a good point. I, I do not think you could use labeling to get around the statutory injunction, statutory stay and bond requirements. So if yeah. uh, if, if this is a case, a money judgment. Now, now under Quile's, Remember, if we're talking about this as a slap, then a slap fee award is deemed a cost award, which is exempt from the bond requirements for money judgment. So it's not treated as a money judgment. But assuming we were talking about a money judgment, you're trying to enforce the automatic stay of a money judgment, you would still have to file. You still have to post the bond as required under uh, 917.1. Yeah, Don't you yeah. think that there are I don't. I don't think trial court or a court of appeal would be taken with the idea that you can get around those by labeling no. your motion as a as an injunction motion. No. <laughs> no. Right. Okay. But one other case, uh, just kind of rounding out, getting a trifecta of of slap related cases. This this case Reyes versus Escobar out of the Second District, also in August two thousand twenty two case, held that a late slap motion, Uh, although the trial court allowed the filing of a a slap motion beyond the 60-day presumptive requirement, it was an abuse of discretion to allow the late filed slap motion here. So the defendant in this case filed an anti-slap motion outside of the 60-day window. And while that window may be enlarged in the trial court's discretion, there are limits to that discretion. And so what happened here in this case, the slap motion was filed Over six months after the amended complaint, but it was filed over two years after the original complaint. The case, the the opinion wasn't entirely clear, but I take it that the court felt that the slap issues were raised in the original complaint. And so the amended complaint did not renew the 60-day window to file the anti-slap motion. Also, in this case, the parties had engaged in considerable motion and discovery practice. And the defendant, this seemed to be the most important reason for the court. The defendant gave no reason for the delay, why that 60-day window needed to be so enlarged to allow for a motion filed over two years after the original filing of the complaint. So the trial court's discretion to consider late filed slap motions is not unlimited. That's the upshot here. The court must consider the length of the delay, the reasons offered for the delay, and potential prejudice to the plaintiff. And the court didn't consider those things here. So the uh, slap order was reversed.
2: Yeah, interesting. I I got to tell you I've never actually litigated the issue of a late filed anti-slot motion and I've never uh dealt with an appeal in terms of the court's discretion. This interesting case, even though it's unpublished, Court of Appeal employed a uh an analysis very similar to late filed petitions to compel arbitration, looking at, you know, how did the parties act? Did they act like they wanted an off-ramp out of litigation and into the world of uh contractual arbitration or did they try to take advantage of all the court powers in terms of discovery and motion practice and is a late anti-slap motion does it thwart the purposes of a slap which allows for early exit of the case and and avoiding that discovery and motion practice is interesting i appreciate you uh, bringing it to my attention you're uh, muted uh,
0: now jeff if the defendant had come to you in this case before filing the the belated anti-slap motion what sorts of criteria or factors would you try to raise to that the court could could rely on for a valid exercise of its discretion to enlarge the window to file the slap motion?
2: Yeah, good questions. One, I wasn't sure uh, which of the parties was improper here, but if it was uh, the slapping party, the person filing the uh, anti-slap anti motion was improper, that'd be something I'd point the court to. And the other thing is prejudice. You know, who's really prejudiced by the late filing of the slap? I didn't see really a discussion of prejudice in this case. Right.
0: All right, Jeff, um, that, that concludes my anti-slap tour de force, and you had a case
2: about First Amendment issues. I do love First Amendment cases, and a case came out today, the day we're recording this podcast, in the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, the D.C. Circuit, and this is not a California case, but I found it interesting, both in terms of legal writing and substance. The introduction to this case is simple and to the point, and for the writing alone, I really think the opinion's uh, noteworthy. Here's from the court's uh, introduction. Lisa Guffey and Christine Smith work at the administrative office of the United States courts. When they are away from work, they want to express support for their preferred candidates in partisan elections. AO employees could do that for the first 79 years of the agency's history, but since 2018, the AO has forbidden it. That prohibition violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. What a great, powerful, clear, succinct statement. Hmm. It's interesting. The opinion doesn't really state why, and that's the most, uh, uh, the biggest question I have about this case. But back in 2018, the Administrative Office issued a list of like nine restrictions they were imposing on employees and what they could and couldn't do off duty, when away from uh, work. And these uh, the things they were prevented from doing included making public expressions of support donating money to campaigns, wearing buttons or displaying signs at home, attending a, a party's convention, or attending a candidate's campaign events.
0: Now, now, these are just in their personal capacities, not in any official capacity?
2: Correct. Off-duty. And the people in the Ministry of Office do not decide decisions. They are not uh, typically what you think of in terms of uh, judicial employees. They provide technology support and Resource and administrative support to make sure justices can travel here and there and that uh, the judges hearing cases or the lawyers who work under the supervision of the courts on panels have the tech they need to to do what they do. And the administrative office went to court and tried to justify these regulations, saying it's important to protect the perception of the judiciary as impartial. That's why they put these regulations in place in 2018. But uh, in this decision that was issued today, because administrative office employees do not actually decide cases. There's too tenuous a connection between these employees and any perception impartiality in the judiciary. And yeah, it's just an interesting decision, a reminder that public employees do retain first amendment rights uh, in terms of what they can and can't do uh, when they're off duty.
0: Yeah. That sounds like the right uh, outcome to me. What, what about you, Jeff? it does seem like, to me, too tenuous a connection between, you know, the tech support workers at, at the court and other administrative clerical type workers who, who are not involved in any way in deciding cases, they should be able to preserve their First Amendment liberties when off
2: duty, no? It's absolutely the right result. And uh, I just, I'm super curious, maybe a listener of a podcast will email me the answer. What happened in 2018 to cause the AO to issue these nine regulations that were struck down in this decision? What was the problem that they were trying to fix that for decades, uh, employees could do this and all of a sudden they couldn't?
0: That would that would make for a valuable piece of journalism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we just have a couple of tidbits to, uh, to finish us off today. Listeners should note that next month on September 20th, we're going to have David Ettinger on the show to talk about. The Supreme Court vacancy, as most uh, as many of our listeners may have heard, the Chief Justice has announced her retirement, and Governor Newsom has announced a replacement. And uh, David Ediger is going to be talking about that and some of the discussion and and mild controversy that surrounds whether her replacement may be nominated merely or or has to be appointed. Can the governor delay the appointment Uh or nomination until after the election to prevent the need for retention elections? So. We'll ask David Ediger that on our episode right. on September twenty. Well, actually, September 20th, we'll uh, talk with David Ediger, and the podcast will be released on the
2: 27th of September. Great, great. And then going back about 30 episodes, we uh, interviewed someone about the Charlie Manson genetics case, someone who was an heir to Charlie Manson. And uh, a quick announcement about that episode, the state of California has approved us as MCLE providers for that episode. And stay tuned uh, in the weeks to come for details on how to claim your credit. If you listen to that episode, for not just MCLE credit, but but for appellate specialization MCLE credit, we're looking to become MCLE providers for all our episodes. But for right now, episode ten has been approved, and we'll uh, we'll uh, get you the details on how to claim your credit in the uh, coming weeks.
0: We are always looking to enhance the value of this podcast for our listeners. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, that wraps us up for this episode and a quick, oh, uh, Jeff, you had a question for our listeners.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A quick question for our listeners. If we were to have one or two retired California appellate justices as guests in the next few weeks, what questions would you want us to ask of those appellate justices? Email us your best suggestions at info at calpodcast.com.
0: I remember when we have uh, Ben Schatz on the show and he talked about how it was important for both the bench and the bar to kind of cross-pollinate. You know, the, the bar wants to know what the bench is thinking, and the bench also wants to know what the bar is thinking. So this is a, a good opportunity to uh, to help further that cross-pollination. And uh, we also want to, again, thank Case Text for sponsoring our podcast. Each week, we include links to the cases that we discuss, and we use Case Text to provide our listeners links to those cases and listeners can find a 25% discount available to them if they sign up to Case Text at casetext.com slash C
2: A L P. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, including questions for retired uh, California appellate justices, please email us at infocalpodcast.com and in our upcoming episodes look for tips on how to lay the groundwork for an appeal when preparing for trial. See you next time.
1: You have just listened to the California Appellate Podcast a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. For more information about the cases discussed in today's episode, our hosts, and other episodes, visit the California Appellate Law Podcast website at calpodcast.com. That's calpodcast.com. Thanks to Jonathan Caro for our intro music. Thank you for listening, and please join us again.